The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk. Hello, my name's John Schaefer, and I'm here today with the Lion Trust Economic Advantage team. On my left, I've got Anthony Cross, Victoria Stevens, and Matthew Tong. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank Thanks you for having us. Let's uh, start off with a maybe slightly difficult question on the uh, on your flagship four billion special situations fund. I mean, outflows have been pretty severe, amounting to more than two billion over three years. How have you looked to stem those outflows? You're absolutely right. We, like so many other funds in the UK all cap sector, have experienced outflows. That's, of course, partly down to clients increasingly allocating away from the UK and more towards global. But for us, I think there are a couple of key points. The first is that it, we've always prioritised clear communication with clients. And that's all the more important in tough times, as we all know. So that's really been a, a focus, hand-holding clients through these, these more difficult periods. And then the other thing I think is that we are always very, very keen to stress the consistency of process and its application for us. We think that's a real differentiator for our team. And it's something which hopefully, you know, clients appreciate that what we are, what we stand for, what the fund represents, and how that's likely to perform in different market conditions. And what that means is that when those conditions then start to improve, and that's obviously something we have definitely seen signs of, certainly over the last sort of three months, uh, it means that they can then, they know what they've got, they know when it's likely to then uh, to start performing again. And we are very hopeful that, that you know, the tide is turning on that front, uh, certainly signs of life. I appreciate the, the UK market has been pretty negative. I mean, for, for every active manager in this space, it, it's been a hard ride. But that fund is consistently one of, one of the worst in terms of outflows. Month after month, you see investors pulling cash out of that fund. Why do you think that's the case? Well, it's a big fund. You know, it, it, you know, it's one of the biggest UK equity funds. We look at it in terms of market share. We're not losing market share. But if you've got a big fund, then the numbers can look quite big. But it's really quite manageable. We've been mm. you know, seeing some outflows for a little while now, but they're not big day to day. So we can manage it you know, very, very carefully and be thinking ahead all the time. And it's, it's been fine. What about management of liquidity in the fund, considering it's got a pretty significant allocation to small caps? That's around a quarter of the fund is in small caps. A quarter is in small caps. 75% is in FTSE 350 in cash. So, you know, liquidity is good. In terms of the way that Lion Trust look at it, we've got a, 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 you know, a very strong independent risk uh, department committee. Who, who look at the liquidity of the funds and they do stress testing under various scenarios. The other important thing to think about is the, the kind of relationship we have with the trading team. So yes, sometimes you get kind of average daily volume statistics for companies, but actually when you have a very close relationship with your trading team and a very good trading team, they are finding and sourcing pools of liquidity that are often far bigger than the average daily volume. So that relationship with our dealing team is, is very powerful. Uh, Special Sits has, you know, over 50 holdings, about 56 holdings. Uh, the biggest position would be up to 4% of the fund in an individual company. Uh, we don't do loss-making businesses. 
And as I said, you know, there's a lot of liquidity in the FTSE 350. But you know, when you're up to four percent in a very small cap company and you've got a four billion fund, that can be pretty sizable. Yeah, I mean, we're not. There's no small companies where we're up to four percent. If you look at the top ten holdings in special sits, they're all FTSE yeah. 100 companies. And the way that we risk score companies is a really, you know, sensible way of thinking about the downside to a share price and the downside to earnings if something goes wrong in the business. So generally, we get it right, and our bigger holdings in the fund are those businesses that are less likely to suddenly have a, a collapse and maybe a liquidity concern in terms of their, their share price and volume. What have conversations been like with investors about your small cap allocations, that concern that's sort of coming up again and again? No, because you know, part of the reason why people like special sits is that alpha that we get from small cap. And you know, the, the outperformance of the small cap element in special sits and the alpha that it's given to the fund, therefore, has been immense over the years. You know, they buy special sits knowing that part of our expertise, part of our offering is, is smaller companies. Mm. And we've always said, look, we're gonna have between 20 and 30% in small companies, and we've, we've maintained that. We've made a lot of money for investors in that small companies portion. And yes, of course, there is volatility in small companies, but our investors, they get that. There will be times where there's a drawdown in the performance of small companies. But the bounce back can be equally as strong, and if not bigger, because that's how you get your yep. long-term compounding. So people have, know what they've bought with special sits. We're very clear on the process. We're very clear on how we build the fund. We're very clear on the risk weightings of various individual businesses. So as Anthony said, you know that it, that power of the bounce back is should not be underestimated. Yep. We were recently out talking to some clients on our UK smaller companies fund and doing a bit of work on what that subsequent return looked like post the 2008 drawdown for that IA smaller company sector. And in 2008, that sector fell on average 40 percent, 40 and a half percent. And the subsequent five year return was well over 200 percent. So I think the, the real key for us is to make sure that investors understand what the profile of the fund is. To, our message has consistently been that we're going to keep that shape of the fund consistent for our investors. And hopefully they're now looking forward to a period where those small caps can come in and close that valuation gap again. Let's maybe look at some reasons to be cheerful mm -hmm. in small cap. Um, there's been pretty negative music around small caps, um, as we've kind of alluded to already. Where are the opportunities? Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. I mean, if you look at, look at AIM in 22, it was down 30%. And again, another 7% last year in contrast to the, the FTSE small cap, which was actually up. AIM, you know, we're talking almost down 40% in two years. Terrible time. A lot of that's been driven by derating, so companies getting cheaper on, um, on their ratings. When things are cheaper, that's generally a good time to start looking at them. You know, if you look at the, look at the size of the AIM market, it's got about 650 companies in it. It's about 70 billion total AUO in that. And if you look at contrast with the FTSE small cap, that's only actually 114 companies. So if you want to invest in some of the best UK growth business, the smaller, you know, the smaller growth engines, really the A market's where yeah. you want to be looking these days. So that's where we're quite excited about it. We think having had those two torrid years, if you look at some of the data, this is this is where the, the biggest undervaluation in the market's sitting. So that's why we're quite excited. And you, and you know, if you're a if you're an entrepreneur these days in the UK, that's generally where you want to come and list your companies on so AIM. Inferring from that, that you're still pretty positive on, on AIM and you're not going to be reducing your allocation to AIM in that mega special situation. Yeah, fund. if you think about the underperformance there, what we could have let, what happened is that the AIM portion of the fund get quite a lot smaller as, yep. the, out, as the large caps outperform, but we deliberately kept the shape over 
over 22 and 23. So we've had that 20 to 30% in small caps, roughly 20, 23, 24 now. So that when that turn does come, mm. all the investors who've bought the fund are going to enjoy that, you know, enjoy that rally. And if, you know, had we not done that, there's going to be questions asked, you know, because that's why people buy that fund. It's for that. For that alpha and that. Yeah, yeah for yeah. that multi-cap yeah. product, basically. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if you look at the bounce back, as you know, the city will know that the, 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 num the recent numbers for special sits have been really, really nice, a good bounce back. And that's what you get from smaller companies. It can happen very, very quickly. Sure. And you've got to have the weight in them to enjoy that, you can't you can't second guess when it's going to happen. That's okay. the thing. And, and in terms of opportunities, are there specific new holdings that you're kind of looking at? That or is it or sort of doubling down on companies that you already own in the portfolio and you want to buy more? I think what we've mainly focused on is is topping up our existing yeah. positions. It's hard to argue, particularly when you're you know you would be playing happy families, one in, one out. Um, that you know there isn't an enormous amount of value that's been evident on offer within the existing holdings. So, you know that that mentality has definitely um, been one that we've been looking to exploit over the last couple of years, where we've got the available capital to deploy. You know, let's look for the opportunities in businesses that often we've known for five, ten years, even longer, uh, because of our very long time horizon. Which sectors are you, you particularly bullish on over the next year? That doesn't just have to be in small cap. That can be across the market cap spectrum. Before answering that, it's important to to let your listeners understand sort of how we how we how we do it, our, our process. Um, for us, you know, it, it's not about that short-term turning of the portfolio dependent upon external macroeconomic factors. So we wouldn't take a sectoral view on a sort of short-term time uh, horizon mm -hmm. for that reason. Um, what we do do is follow this very clear, consistent investment process where we're looking for intangible asset strengths within businesses or intellectual capital, prioritizing three as a gateway into the fund, inter uh, intellectual property, strength in distribution or high levels of recurring income and any company we own has to have a strength in at least one of those and what does that mean for our sector footprint it means it's quite consistent over time because we tend to find a lot of ideas in certain sectors of the market okay. so we have a lot in industrials healthcare technology media companies fee-based financial services companies with recurring income you know big consumer staples companies that have got global distribution strength and then conversely, we have whole areas of the market where we simply don't see what we're looking for. So we have zero allocation. An example there would be high street banks mm. um, and insurers, and then also mining companies. So with that in mind, you know, you ask, where do we see the opportunity? I, th I think it's very clear that for us, the opportunity over the next year is to be stock pickers. You know, that's, that's sure. our sort of bread yeah. and butter. And it's so clear to see that for so many of our companies and obviously that's predominantly in the sort of small and mid cohort but by no means isolated to that there are certainly examples up in the up in the FTSE 100 as well you know, there's a huge amount of, of value on offer and that's what we're excited about maybe you could explain a little bit more about why you are negative on banks and miners i mean they're sort of staples of uk equity managers yeah. normally i mean we're not we're not negative as in we don't believe that people can ever make money out of them but they don't fit the investment process. Yes, banks arguably might have a distribution network, but has that ever really translated through into consistently good returns on invested capital? No. Uh, mining companies, we don't see the intellectual capital argument within them. So there are sectors in the market, you know, house builders or, or banks or miners, you know, general retailers with little barrier to competition, which we'll not own, but they can perform sometimes in the market. But our style is to try and pick these long-term compounders. Yeah. And that's how we've delivered the returns for, for unit holders over the years. So is there an element that there has to be a sort of 
core idea of innovation behind every stock that you hold? Really? Not necessarily innovation, but intellectual property yeah. sits behind a lot of our invest investments from you know, the engineering companies to some of the media businesses to technology businesses. But you might be just a, a very high recurring income business because that's the way you sell your business on a fee or a subscription. You might not necessarily have a large innovation budget behind you. Compass Group, for example, does a fair amount of innovation, but it's, you wouldn't claim that it's a sort of intellectual property-based business. But it's a distribution network and it's high recurring income. Diageo as well, which is one, would, would be a yeah. top holding. Would, would we say that's a, a big oh, intellectual property business? No, I mean, again, there'll be a, 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 a quite a lot of innovation going on, but yeah. it's a distribution network business. Yeah. And below that, amazing brands. Um, you know, things like Guinness have been, been drunk now for over 265 years. So this, these are businesses with brands and, and, and staying power. What about long-term conviction in oil majors? I mean, are, are there any ESG concerns in this area? Obviously, Lion Trust is known for its sustainable investment as well. Is it a bit of a conflict there? Big oil is... Um, two interesting things are going on. So the first is that the capital discipline has improved a lot. Um, they're much more focused on you know, improving their returns on invested capital. Uh, the cash flows are coming through quite nicely. And you take a, you know, something like BP has bought back 16% of its equity in the last two years. So there's capital discipline going on. So we think they're, they're, they're sort of performing better as businesses. But we've also made the argument and believe the argument that they've got a very important part to play in energy transition. So these are businesses with, with a depth of intellectual property. They've also got amazingly strong distribution networks. So you think of Shell in liquid gas, you think of Shell in its retail arm, you think of Shell in its energy trading arm. And BP also has big retail, big energy trading. So they've got the big distribution networks. So we think they're going to play a very important part in energy transition. And their balance sheets are helping that too. So they're buying up some of the more distressed businesses that were perhaps highly valued two years ago in the new energy areas and building them into their, into their portfolio. So we think they're going to be very relevant to energy transition. Now, of course, there is environmental risk associated with oil companies, but there's also the kind of energy security the, the S in ESG has kind of moved up the agenda, and so people are feel. A, I think people feel a bit more balanced about the oil companies in mm. terms of their their relationship with with the world of ESG. Uh, have you noticed the move music change with yes. fund selectors quite a lot over the, maybe the last year or so? Definitely. I mean, you know, two or three years ago, uh, I can remember, you know, the beginning of sort of COVID time, we were getting quite aggressive questions on why are you owning oil companies? Mm. They're bad for the planet, and, and you shouldn't be owning them. And there's a lot of you know, disinvestment going on in the likes of BP and Shell in the London market at that time. But definitely the, the mood has, has changed. We don't get challenged so much now on environmental concern because the businesses are trying to address it. But also this whole thing of energy security, people are much more accepting of. And I think people are much more accepting too about the, the importance that these companies will have in the energy transition. The kind of slight naivety that was had at the time that we can just jettison oil. Mm. I think people have realized, well, look, it's going to be part of our energy mix for a long time to come. We need it not only in terms of sort of fuel, but also in terms of things like production of plastics and everything else that's critical to people's day-to-day -day lives and even in healthcare, where all, all, you know, oil, oil finds its way into so many different products that we can't just suddenly get rid of it. So I think everyone's just kind of moved on a bit and realised that, you know, that, that transition will occur, but these companies are going to be part of it and a really useful part of it. Have there been any holdings that you've added to the portfolio recently? I mean, actually, in the last two years, we've really been more focused on stuff, as Vic said, that we actually already own. So we've been topping up some holdings and some, some stocks that have underperformed. 
Um, in our microcap fund, we've had a few new holdings where we've had some takeovers. So um, yeah, but, but we've put a few names in that, but it's, it's been more bedding down and really looking up, you know, kind of what, we're, what we already held and, and chopping up some of those names really. We're kind of hoping there might be a bit of a unlocking of the IPO market maybe. Okay. A few new things coming into that. Maybe. Is that something that you're, you're particularly, I mean, we can talk about that later, but is yeah. that something you're quite excited about over the next next year? I think the unfreezing of it for the sell yeah. side is going to be helpful because, you know, they've, they've struggled for the last two years. I think might show some confidence back in London if we can get some, some good IPOs. But it, I mean, it's not, I'm not think, sitting here thinking there's going to be a lot really because we get to see them quite early and there hasn't mm. been a lot of chat, to be honest. There's, there's one thing coming at the moment which yep. we're looking at, but you know, there's not like a 50 or something. Yeah. I mean, it takes a little bit of time for them because, of course, you know, what we don't see so much of is all of that preparation that goes on behind the scenes before a company gets to the point where it can then present to investors. So often you'll find there's a sort of minimum three-month, but often a lot longer period where they're getting themselves in shape, appointing advisors, getting their prospectus document, which, as we all know, is going longer and lo getting mm. longer and longer and longer. And so that sort of preparation is costly and it takes a bit of time. So what you often find is that you need to see a decent upswing maintained for a good couple of months before companies are actually ready to press the button on starting. And I think I'm quite hopeful that what we've seen since the end of October in terms of a marked shift uh, in what's felt like the mood music of the market might then catalyze the start of that preparation cycle so that towards the back end of this year and into next year, we might see a much healthier new do, I mean, do you think, do you think um, investors have, have lost a bit of confidence in, in UK IPAs? I mean, I, I, I know you didn't invest in this stock, but cab payments was a high-profile blow-up last year. Do you think sort of people that, like yourselves, that might conventionally have looked at IPAs are a bit spooked? People want to be optimistic um, that, that there's going to be more new companies, fresh ideas coming to the market. Um, I think probably it's ever more important when you've got that as a sort of um, a, a background influence, if you like, to maintain your own discipline as investors. You can't be pulled into doing something just because you think it's good mm. for the market. You know, for us, we will be almost doubling down on the importance of that investment process and making sure that the um, opportunity in front of us fits what we're looking for. And I, I'm sure many others will be in the same boat there. What about stocks that you, you might have cut or, or taken profits on over, over the last couple of months? Nothing much over the last couple of months, apart from sometimes you'll get quite, you know, the outperformance that you saw earlier in 2023 of some of the large cap stocks. Uh, we could take some profits there. So we took quite a lot of profits out of things like Diageo and little bits out of Shell and some of the bigger businesses. Um, otherwise, you know, it, we've been keeping the portfolio pretty consistent. So the outperformance that you've seen more recently of small caps, you know, because of really quite strong outperformance, has meant in some cases we've taken a little bit out of some of those, you know. So the liquidity has been back a bit for small caps. So that's where we've, we've taken a little bit out of small caps in specials, as well as large caps earlier in 2023. Let's have a look at the, the UK growth funds. It's a, another big mandate, a £1 billion fund there. But it's been the only fund in your uh, economic advantage team that's really been able to gain inflows. Why do you think that's been the case? Not only is it the only fund in, in, in our stable, but it's one of the only funds in the UK that took net money last year. In fact, I think of the 220-odd active funds, only six took money which were an active fund, and that was UK Growth is actually the, uh, kind of one of the best sellers. So what's going on there? I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, if you think back to 2022, the big underperformance of the average fund. So the average fund in 22 was down 10%, and our UK growth fund was was pretty much flat in line with mm. the index. So 
most uh, most investors look at that and go, how come my average UK funds down 10 and the, the market's flat? So that tends to put advisors' behaviour into buying things which are more like in line with the market. Secondly, your average active funds overweight small and mid-cap, and they obviously did really badly. People might often have a small cap fund as well, so they've been doubling up on their small and, small and mid-cap exposure. So I think as a, as a kind of an antidote to that, they said, OK, we want more large cap. We want a fund that performs a bit more like the index. Do you feel like investors like to sort of segregate into, I've got a small and mid-cap fund, I've got a sort of large cap UK fund? Obviously, there's thousands of different investors doing different things, but, but I think what a lot of people might have done is said, OK, I'm going to buy a UK all companies fund from the all company sector, not realising about 50% in small and mid-cap in that, those funds anyway, like our special sits fund. And then I'm going to have a small cap fund as well. And you end up doubling up on that small cap exposure over two years, as we've discussed, aims down 40%. You're like, mm. oh, this hasn't worked out well. So what people have been doing is selling the, those active funds and buying a more large cap type fund. So, e so either a tracker fund that they've sold really, really well, and our UK growth funds like a kind of a proxy tracker type size in sure. terms of what you know where it's invested so because of the way the funds um we do the portfolio construction our growth fund is index plus whereas special sits would be absolute so as an example astrazeneca we'd have three percent in the special sits fund we've got eight percent in the uk growth fund so it performs a lot more like a FTSE all share um, mm. And I think that's why people have been buying it. Have you seen people move from the special sits fund into the UK growth fund? Uh, not typically, they wouldn't do that. It, they're kind of aimed at different clients. So if you want to buy one fund for the UK that covers the whole thing, people will buy special sits. If you're a typically investor who's got 4% now only in the UK, you don't want to take that active risk, you might buy a UK growth fund. I think some of our overseas investors, typically as well, like the UK growth fund because it behaves more like the you know, like the index. Mm. You wouldn't switch between the two unless you sure. were changing your strategy internally, which, you know, some people obviously do all the time. Maybe we could drill down a little bit on the, the small companies fund. Is there a cap potentially on that fund? It's now a, a billion in, in assets. Um, pretty big considering the market it's in. We've never put a cap out there. I think the question is how do you get to your certain level of AUM? So that's, it's a really relevant mm. question as a manager. So if we come in tomorrow, all the stocks in the fund are rallied 20%. We're running 1.2 billion. Has that caused us an issue? No. Everything's just more more valuable. I mean, it did peak at 1.8 billion at one point, but obviously the market's okay. come down a lot. So we never want to put a target on it. What I would say is we're always reviewing it, and so we've got a risk team. So we're always looking at the capacity of it. Right now, it feels very comfortable. You know, the challenges were running that amount of money in the sector. I mean, if you look at the UK, as I said before, aims about 70 billion, small caps about 30. So that's about 100 billion, 100 billion of. Uh, equity we can go and invest in there, so kind of one percent of the whole market, the fund. So that's from a from an ideas point of view, it's not too bad. I think the thing we do have to do is be long-term investors. So back to our investment strategy, it's about trying to find these long-term compounders. If you were a high trading strategy, if we wanted to turn the fund over thirty percent a year, we just wouldn't be able to run that much money. Probably the other challenge is obviously we want to go and see all our investors and. We've got a lot more than if you had a 10 million pound fund. So doing stuff like this is brilliant, actually, using technology to talk to people yep. post-COVID. But that's been very helpful. We talked about the IPA market as well. I think we want we want to make sure London remains a healthy place for small companies to come come and list. Because in the very long run, although it's fine now, if we don't do that, then 
you know, we're going to end up with a market that dies. And, you know, as you can say, Matt, well, what are you investing? We've nothing listed for 10 yeah. years. That's, that would be very sad. Or, you know, companies get swallowed up by sort of US private equity companies and then, you know, maybe great for you at the time, but yeah. you haven't got anything else to invest in. No, really. exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's always a double-edged sword of a takeover, yeah. um, which we always, you know, we're assessing. But as you say, it's nice on the day, but... We, you know, we try and think, well, actually, on a 10-year view, is, is this good for our investors or not? You know, we have to people are always weighing up the, the, you know, those two. Obviously, AIM and, and UK Small Caps are very much a sort of stock pickers market, really. But a lot of managers in this sector have really found it hard to, to gain alpha. How do you do it? Process. Mm-hmm. We've been doing this a long time. So I started the Small Cap Fund in 1998. And this process of looking for intangible assets and high returns on invested capital gets you into businesses with barriers to competition, hopefully the chance to compound for a long period of time, and it's that compounding effect. It's amazing. You can look back at share prices and think, God, I'd never realised you've gone up 13 times since we've owned you. They just quietly do it. Mm. Um, So having that real discipline of process is really important. Uh, Building that long-term relationship with clients is really important. Uh, having low turnover, because turnover in small companies is expensive, because you, you know, you're buying and yeah. selling and all, that, all of that. So process, client relationships, low turnover, just, just getting the power of compounding behind the fund really makes it work. This is not just an element of relationships with investors, but investee companies with, with this. You've, you've got a lot more sway in, in the smaller end of the market than you would on a Shell and BP with a, you know, with a yeah. name company. You can probably got a lot of weight there when you're a billion pound fund. Yeah, and there's a fair amount of, of weight. So you kind of, you have quite a, you know, good grown-up relationship with the investee companies. Uh, because you run quite a lot of money, you get the call from brokers on things coming to the market or things happening. And the other big thing that, you know, I've always loved and we, we always love about the process is, is that we invest in businesses where, you know, the directors, the people who manage the company also own equity. Mm. It's part of, part of what we do is this equity ownership. And it's often in the high teens in the funds, both special sits and the smaller companies fund, the level of director's ownership is in the high teens and it's, it's, it's really powerful. We're, we're working alongside often founder managers who are deeply, you know, in, you know, they're so passionate about what they do and how they build their business. And when things are tough, they feel it. That's what's really nice as an investor. You know that you're not just the only one feeling it tough if it's a tough time. Sure. The management are too, and they will want to get things, you know, back to... Yeah, they're aligned with the performance. Yeah, back yeah, to happiness exactly. again. Yeah. Yeah. What's also really exciting about Small Cap is where you find those opportunities that you feel are genuinely overlooked by the market. And I think, you know, one thing that's very nice, as Ant said about our process, is that it does get you into these areas of the market that are structurally growing. They've got those sort of underlying drivers that remain solid through different economic cycles. And what we found, you know, on multiple occasions, but it's it's really felt very obvious over the last couple of years, is that you can have these short periods where sentiment somehow becomes completely dislocated from reality Mm. um, in small cap. I think one really obvious example of that that's happened over the last year is this whole AI trend, Um, a structural mega trend for sure. Um, But the way that the market is treating large cap businesses, which are perceived to have decent exposure to that trend and small cap businesses is very, very different. So 
just within our stable of funds, you know, you've got the likes of Relics, the mm. business analytics provider, and Sage, both properly off to the races in yeah. 2023. Mm -hmm. I think up 44% and 60%, um, you know, in terms of total return for that year. Both of them absolutely innovating within their product portfolios, you know, ready to launch or have already launched um, and are already getting traction with AI-based products. So, so that's fantastic and, and the market has realized that. But on the other side, in small cap, you know, I think that the debate has very much focused on the risk side of the risk-reward sure. equation and seems to completely overlook the reward side. So two examples I could give you very quickly there would be one business called Keyword Studios, which we've held for a very long time since Float um, in the Special Situations Fund. Keywords is an outsourced video game services provider and it derated heavily last year. Uh, it fell over 40% in total okay. return terms. But when we had a meeting with the management team and were talking about AI, they were very eloquently describing how it was exactly their market positioning, their, their distribution strength, if you like, their three times bigger than the nearest competitor, was exactly what was going to position them as a key aggregator of these technologies. So, so why did they clients. fall 40%? Well, you've got a couple of things going on there. You've got one, just investors not wanting to look at the potential rewards coming through mm. from that shift. They're too worried about what might be the fallout on the risk side. You've also obviously got, for a sector like video gaming, an element of cyclicality in there. Keywords sure. has actually been pretty resilient in that, uh, on that front. You know, the downgrades have been minor, they've been at the margin, but still it doesn't prevent people from worrying about what the potential impact might be. That's where the beauty of a longer term process comes in because you can take that medium to longer term view on value creation. I mean, there's a challenge with the gaming sector because you know you always hear that it's the, now the biggest entertainment sector, it's yeah. sort of surpassed uh, film and you know, TV, etc. But also it's pretty concentrated. There's mm -hmm. a couple of titles, a couple of platforms that take pretty much all the cash in that sector. Has Keyword got some sort of big flagships that it can can get out to the market that can really generate that sort of outsized revenue? The key with Keywords to understand is that it is a services provider to that industry. So it's almost a, a picks and shovels mm. play, if you like, on that wider video gaming um, industry. Um, certainly though, for the listed video game development businesses, life has been a lot tougher of late. And that's partly been exacerbated, of course, by the fact that during COVID, unhelpfully, it was felt helpful at the time for many of them, I'm sure, but, but in terms of the longer term potential and, and, and sentiment now, they've had this extreme dislocation of demand. Mm. They were part of a group of stocks that we termed the, the hobbyist stocks mm. during COVID, benefiting from people sitting in their living rooms and twiddling their thumbs. Um, and understandably, demand was off the charts. I think one thing you've seen frequently happen with those development businesses is that perhaps enthusiasm, got, they got carried away with that, with that demand dynamic. Yeah. Many of them, and obviously the development cycles are not always short, sometimes they're extended, and they put too much investment in too quickly on the back of demand, which was ultimately inflated in the short term. So that is something that has definitely hit a number of the development businesses. But as I say, keywords is, is a different beast to those. Within the portfolio, you seem to like the wealth and asset management space. You've got sort of the likes of Tatton, AJ Bell, in there. Why do you like that sector? If you think back to the uh, investment process, we like intellectual property, IP, distribution networks, but also high contracted recurring income. So for us, that means so that's repeat business, really. So for us, we want a company that's got 70% of its turnover you know, under contracts every year. I mean, you know, we really like that as an asset. And that's what, sorry, that's what we see in these, these companies. Yes, market levels go up and down. But generally, people are paying ad valorem fees to, you know, to subscribe. Now, why do we like that? Well, think about 
the contrast to a to a high street retailer. So today it's it's raining hard outside. If you're an umbrella shop, you're going to be having a great day. People walking in and out. It's, you know, if you're selling bikinis, it's going to be quite tricky, right? So, as a fashion retailer, you need to plan six months ahead. You need to think about the weather. You need to stock your store, and you've got no idea what customers you've got coming in. So it's really hard to plan. Whereas if you're a Hargreaves Lansdowne or an AJ Barrow or a Tatton, yes, markets go up and down, but you, you've got a pretty good idea over that year how much money you're going to earn as a, as a business. You can therefore make investment decisions. The stock market tends to like you more as an, uh, as an asset because you've got more predictable revenues because clearly what, what makes shares go up and down is beating and missing numbers. To a point in terms of inflows, I mean, we saw during the pandemic, people had some spare cash and they were putting it onto these online platforms. And then more recently, when cash rates have gone up, you haven't had the inflow. So maybe the predictability isn't quite as, as yeah, I mean, as that, obvious. That's a fair point. I think they, they obviously enjoyed enjoyed that people being, you know, again, hobbyists at home, perhaps. Obviously, cash rates are now very competitive for for, for the industry. And, you know, we, we've seen that for the listed and unlisted companies and, our, you know, our clients in, in that yes, you can get really good rates in the bank. So why even bother to put it in the market? But I'd still argue that they're more predictable than a, than a fashion high street retailer. So even, you know, even though, um, yes, it's been a bit tricky over the last two years, they still have a good degree of predictability and you know i guess they all knew that was going to be a headwind for you know for their business over the last years when when rates moved although obviously they didn't know rates were going to move option and actually you know if you look at through some of them they're making a lot of money out of the fact that they're getting higher deposit rates than they were pre pre the rate move so it's been a bit of a double-edged sword for them as well it's been positive for for, for some of the businesses. As Matt said, that predictability, obviously that is something that for us, we think about over a medium to longer term time mm. horizon. I think that's quite key. Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean to say that there can't be a degree of volatility in short term earnings, but we want to think almost like the managers of our businesses. We want to see them making the decisions today that are gonna impact their business in three, five, even 10 years time, because we'd ideally like to buy and hold forever. You know, that's our sort of mentality with letting them compound away as long as they could retain their competitive advantage. So in a sense, that is the beauty of a style that doesn't seek to exploit those very short-term uh, dislocations, if you like, in, in, in earnings and what's happening quarter on quarter, but one that seeks to exploit um, the ability of that business to compound over a, a longer time period. On that note, I think we'll leave it there. Anthony, Victoria and Matt, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.